All right, a quick heads up, everybody. Stay tuned after this episode for a special preview of the podcast, The Hilarious World of Depression, featuring writer and sci-fi polymath Will Wheaton. All right, this is your icebreaker. Okay, here's the joke. All right. What happened to the blind skunk? I don't know. Never mind, that joke stinks. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Newman, And from APM, American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party Download the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a meta joke from... Shania Twain! (laughs) That's right, producer James Kim. Country pop megastar Shania Twain is here. And our staff is a little excited about it, Mm -hmm. apparently. Later, she'll answer our listeners' etiquette questions. Plus, we'll hear from newly minted Emmy winner Sterling K. Brown. He stars in NBC's hit drama, This Is Us. Also coming up, the makers of the movie Battle of the Sexes tell us what was going on beneath those 1970s costumes. Emily Haynes of the band Metric shares her dinner party playlist. And I drink cheese tea. Two things I love, but together, we'll see. First this. Since the 2016 presidential election, the number of women stepping up to run for office for the first time has dramatically increased. One American thrilled to hear that, Hillary Clinton. Hear her perspectives on the last election and the future of American politics on the latest episode of Call Your Girlfriend, the unapologetically feminist show where best friends Ann Friedman and Aminatou So real talk one another through politics and more. Hillary Clinton also chats about her book What Happened and about the friends who got her through this defeat. Check out Call Your Girlfriend Friend, available on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. All right, welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, today featuring a special guest. Shania Twain! Yes. <laughs> Country pop star Shania Twain is here, but not physically here yet, you guys. She's stopping by later. Come on, okay. man. Sorry to let you down. Sorry. And we're equally excited about our other guests. Among them, Emmy-winning actor Sterling K. Brown, musician Emily Haynes of Metric, and the directors of the new movie, Battle of the Sexes. But first, small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. Playboy founder Hugh Hefner died at the age of 91. There was another show of unity last night from players in the NFL. $6.7 billion in two days will be released into the FEMA accounts, which equally applies to Puerto Rico. Now for something you might not have heard, we're joined by Erin McCann. She is a senior staff editor at the New York Times. Erin, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? Uh, I am here with a story about insects. Okay. Hmm. Mosquitoes, to be precise. But these mosquitoes do not bite you or suck your blood. A couple of public health researchers are pushing for the Unicode Consortium to allow a mosquito emoji in their next batch of little pictures that they put on your phone. Right. So Unicode, they decide what emojis are out there. Yes. They are the gatekeepers. And the idea of a mosquito would be, I can see this being used to call someone a pest. Ah. I think that will inevitably be what happens sometimes. But what these researchers are hoping is that if Unicode allows a mosquito emoji, it will help people communicate about some of the diseases that come along with mosquitoes, you know, uh, West Nile and Zika. So there's a public health aspect of this. Exactly. They propose combining, say, a mosquito with a rain cloud, like, hey, it's going to rain and then there's going to be these standing puddles of water and that's where mosquitoes breed and be careful and watch out. So this seems like a a shoo-in, right? Great idea for an emoji. You would think so. It does have some competition, though. Like, oh, here we go. Um, among there are 67 finalists, of which mm-hmm. this is one. It's up against a tooth, it's up against a lab coat, 
It's well, up against, I mean, uh, I'm pulling for the mosquito, but there's also a llama in contention. This sounds like the craziest game of Monopoly ever. <laughs> <laughs> Those characters. It's going to have a tough road to hoe against a llama, though. I feel like mm. llamas are somehow in the zeitgeist. I see them popping up in video games. and they like are. Bank of America, ATMs, they're using it as a logo. They do seem to be the, one of the Internet's favorite animals, but I think the mosquito has sort of the public good aspect behind it. It's got the moral high ground. <laughs> uh, Aaron McCann, thanks so much for the small talk. You bet. And now, let's meet our guest of honor. All right, and that would be Sterling K. Brown. Mm. He won his first Emmy for portraying Christopher Darden in The People vs. O.J. Simpson American Crime Story, and he won his second, a little over a week ago, for his performance as Randall Pearson in the acclaimed NBC drama This Is Us. When the show begins, Randall is a successful lawyer married with kids and curious to know who his biological father is. His adopted father, Jack, has passed away. Before Sterling won his latest Emmy, Brendan met up with him and asked what it's like to act in a show that is known for making viewers weep uncontrollably. Um, you know, I find it therapeutic. I I enjoy mm-hmm. a good cry. I mean, I've been known to uh, <laughs> to weep uncontrollably with my child at Inside Out or Pete's Dragon. So <laughs> now I can take that remarkable skill and use it for something that people will um, will say I did a good job for. It. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Sometimes do you watch Inside Out to get worked up for a touching moment <laughs> totally, in your trailer? Totally do. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. Well, let's talk about this character you, you play. You play Randall. Yes. And he was adopted and raised by a white family. Yeah. You said that you like playing him partially because he's, quote, black on purpose. Yeah. What, what did you mean by that? What I mean by that is so many people or people of color who happen to be on network television oftentimes wind up playing roles that are all ethnicities submitted. And it Mm. is a wonderful sort of thing because it allows for people of color to have roles where they may not have before in terms of colorblind Mm -hmm. casting. But I think the next step um, forward from colorblind casting is actually seeing people for what they are and using all of what they bring to the table to help tell the story of that character. So if you're dealing with an African-American or a Latino or an Asian, like you make reference and address their culture and their experience within this country, and you use that to help tell the story of that person. They're not just Asian by coincidence or black by coincidence. So I I like the idea that we're moving in that direction where people are being fully seen and appreciated for their differences rather than trying to wash them away and have us all become something that is more homogenized. Only a, a black male could have played Randall because yeah. that's who the, who the part was written for. I mentioned that origin story about being adopted and raised by a white family. Um, as an actor, uh, how does that affect your portrayal of Randall as an adult, knowing that's part of his backstory? I, you know, I ask myself these kinds of questions a lot. My wife and I have conversations. Like, there's certain sort of cultural touchstones that, you know, my wife and I share with one another by virtue of being born the same year in St. Louis, Missouri, both African-American, having a similar education as well. Mm. And so there's a lot of those things that Randall probably missed out on and had to play catch up with. I have a friend of mine um, from St. Louis who's married to a guy who's black, who was raised by a white family on the East Coast. And so I've had Mm. the opportunity to talk to him on occasion about what his experience was like. 
And he's like, you know, I was constantly trying to figure out what the joke was. Like people would t- make references to these movies that I had never seen or music that I hadn't heard. But, you know, through yeah. time and because I had genuine curiosity, I sought it out. And I feel like Randall's that that person that actively sought out um, his culture. Um, you know, through his exposure, through um, this mentor he had as a child uh, named Yvette and being around her children. And then later on, when you choose somebody like Beth for a wife, you know, oftentimes men choose women that look like their moms or remind them of their moms in some way. But Randall made the choice to choose this black woman to share his life with. Um, And I think she probably helps him also you know, educate um, him in those cultural touchstones that he may have missed out on in his youth. Yeah, and, and there's an awareness uh, in, in the episode for which you, uh, congratulations for being nominated for an Emmy. Thanks, man. Uh, the episode that you submitted, I believe, was Memphis. Yes. And which is touching on, on in many ways, but I'm just referring to one small moment in it, is at one point, um, Randall, spoiler alert, uh, is with his biological father, and he's meeting his cousins. Yes. Even though they're like twice and third removed. Yes. It's very, it's a kind of a funny scene. But at one point, he he just burst he burst out and he says something really corny like, "Wait, I know you, I know you, so that makes you William's second cousin and your third cousin." Oh, so you get a cousin? <laughs> you get a cousin? Everybody gets a cousin? Sorry, I was waiting for my wife. No, 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 no. And he's like, you know what? Sorry, I was raised by white people. Yeah. Uh, and there's almost this this awareness he has as, you know, as much as he's kind of learned to kind of inculcate himself with uh, maybe an African-American cultural sensibility that he does come from a different place. And, yeah. and his, his, his instincts are different. He is, wherever he is, he's always a bit on the outside. You know, exactly, yeah. he's he's African American yeah. in an all white family, and then even when he's amongst a, a, a primarily African American group, he's still the only one that's been raised by an all white family. So he's yeah. always just trying to find his place in the group. So that's something that maybe you had to teach yourself through discussions and 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 rehearsing and being an actor. But there are some actually direct parallels with you, it seems, uh, and Randall. You both have a couple of kids. Yep. You both tragically only knew your father's all, all too briefly, it seems. Your, your father passed away when you were younger. This is true. Uh, this show is so much about family. I'm, I'm wondering what maybe you carry from your father to, to this sort of work, which is very much about fathers. Yeah, no, stories about fathers and sons always have a particular resonance for me in my life because I was 10 years old when my dad passed away. Um, And so the opportunity to sort of explore this relationship with William and Randall was intoxicating because the question that I asked myself entering into it, I said, you know, if, if my dad were around or someone who I knew could possibly replace my dad or replace that father figure in my life, I would do everything that I could to pursue that relationship. Um, And so now Randall is given that opportunity. You know, now there's this biological father that he's finally found. And there's so many what ifs that if you don't actively pursue it, they'll just remain what ifs. And then what ifs usually lead to regret. And so he had to, even though he thought when he first met William that he just wanted to chastise him and show him how much he had made of his life, you know, in spite of his absence, what he was really longing for was that sense of connection. Um, yeah. You know, you don't go a hundred miles away from your home and wind up bringing somebody home <laughs> to stay with your family <laughs> yeah. unless there's yeah. something on the inside of you that really is really longing for something that's missing. 
So we've been focusing primarily on This Is Us. You've also got the film Marshall, which yes. is coming out soon, which refers to Thurgood Marshall. That's correct. Um, and a lot of people got to know you in another story that revolved around the courtroom, The People vs. O.J. Simpson. Heard of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, this is an interesting time for, I mean, it's always an interesting time, but stories about criminal justice right now seem to have a particular poignancy or people are maybe starting to pay the right amount of attention to them. Uh, is, is there a common thread in these two stories for you, the, the performance in Marshall and O.J.? I know they're just courtroom dramas, but there's also a sociological angle on that, which seems to be similar. Well, absolutely. I mean, the, the history of sort of the African-American male and how they've been treated systemically by the criminal justice system is sort of at the forefront of both of those stories. And it's the reason why black America rejoiced when O.J. Simpson was acquitted of murder of Ron and Nicole. And Mm. um, it's the reason why the NAACP had Thurgood Marshall going around the country looking to defend African-Americans that they felt were not getting the defense that they deserved and possibly were being falsely accused. Um, Because the system doesn't seem to have us in their best interest all the time. It seems as if there's another eight ball that you're working behind as an African-American male where you're almost presumed guilty uh, and you have to prove your innocence, which is not the way Mm. in which it's supposed to work. Do you you feel like in some way having that heightened awareness of that situation in society is it a heavier weight to bear when you're delivering those lines or scrutinizing those scripts? Yes and no. So there are things that I, I've always been aware of as a black actor that I can't do in the same way as some of my white counterparts because of the way in which it might be perceived. And I give, like, the most innocuous one that I think of immediately is Ace Ventura Pet Detective. I think okay. Jim Carrey is absolutely amazing in Ace Ventura mm-hmm. Pet Detective. But if a black actor gave you the exact same performance, like note for note, people would be like, why is this brother making an ass of himself, right? It it, mm. it just comes across in a very different way. And so I'm, mm. I'm cognizant of that sort of thing as I take on roles and look at what I'm doing because not that I want every character that I play to be upstanding or whatnot, but I don't want them to be an embarrassment to black people, mm. right? Like yeah. that is important to me. I, I want to yeah. play as wide a breadth of, of people as I can, saints and sinners alike, but I don't want to embarrass nobody. Sterling K. Brown. The new season of This Is Us began this week. He's also in the movie Marshall, coming out October 13th. And there's much more of that conversation, including the twisted and hilarious origin story of Sterling's marriage. Over (laughs) on our podcast feed, we posted it earlier this week as part of our Dinner for One series. To hear it, search for Dinner Party Download on your favorite podcast app. All right, coming up. Huh, no interruptions. Ah, There we go. Yes. Country megastar Shania Twain will be here to answer your etiquette questions and more when the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, the directors of Little Miss Sunshine and the new film Battle of the Sexes find the humanity in feminists and chauvinists. Plus, Emily Haynes of the band Metric DJs your dinner party. But first, 
since our staff has been rudely barging into our studios all day, seriously, screaming for our next guest, I think it's time for an etiquette lesson. Yes, each week you send us your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this week is Shania Twain. Oh my. Hailed as the queen of country music, she is the biggest selling female country artist of all time. She's got five Grammys to show for it, including Best Country Album and also Best Country Song for her 1999 tune, You're Still the One. Mm. Shania's new album, titled Now, that's all capital letters, is her first in nearly 15 years. Here's the single, Life's About to Get Good. Oh, life's about joy, life's about pain. It's all about the giving and the will to walk away. I'm ready to be I feel so much happier now. <laughs> so, Shania, welcome to our show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Um, so that song is called Life's About to Get Good. But before we talk about the future and how great it's going to be, let's talk about the present. You haven't released an album in 15 years. What brought you back? Well, I wanted to come back earlier, much earlier. Mm-hmm. But I lost my voice for many years. I was bit by a tick in 2004 uh-huh. on, on the Up Tour. I did get... Lyme disease from the tick bite. Mm. So after discovering that I'd had nerve damage and going through the physiotherapy and all of the research and everything that I had to do in this long uphill climb, I'm finally, I was finally able to record an album. That, it's, I can't think of anything more disturbing to a, a vocal artist than losing your voice. How did you react when that first happened? I mean, devastating. It was really, I grieved for a very long time, just believing that I would never sing again. And I'd pretty much given up on it altogether and just figured, I love songwriting. I'm never going to give up on music. Uh, I will write songs for other voices mm-hmm. to sing. Mm-hmm. But I won't be the recording artist. And it was, I mean, it was, I guess, a survivor's way of looking at it, but it was still devastating. Tell us about the moment where you were able to sing again, though. There were little moments. They were just tiny little baby steps. Mm. You know, I would be doing my exercises, and then all of a sudden a note would actually come out the way I intended it to come out. And I'd Mm. be elated. I would be just, like, jumping for joy. And then I'd, (laughs) and then I'd try it again, and it wouldn't be there. You know, it was one of those things. But I'm like, oh! Okay, it's it was there for a second. You know, that means I'm and and it that encouraged me to keep going. Like anything, you know, like learning how to walk again. I had to learn how to sing again entirely. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. You know, in the time since you you made your last album, I mean, you were a giant crossover hit back then, but it feels like the line between country and pop has blurred even more since then. What do you think distinguishes country music from pop these days? I mean, for me, I can only speak personally. Industry-wise, I don't know and I've never known. It's always been a mystery of of how the industry determines a genre. Hmm. But I do think what drives country music at the core is storytelling. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe what we've been currently trapped in um, that we weren't... Well, like when I was a kid listening to country music, I was listening to... Willie Nelson and Dolly Parton and it was Tammy Wynette and they weren't always singing about trucks and (laughs) swimming in rivers, you know, tailgates and right, dirt roads and stuff. I mean, in fact, a lot of that language wasn't in hardly any of their songs. I mean, I'm sure there were, but they were more stories. You know, Chris Christopherson, a great storyteller. And so I feel that country is a soulful folk uh, storytelling genre in a heartfelt way. 
Otherwise, I really wouldn't know how else to identify with it. I love acoustic instruments, but that's a personal thing. I mean, there's a lot of pop artists that use acoustic instruments, too. So how do you determine that, right? Well, you're saying that you you love acoustic instruments. Uh, We read that your son is a musician himself who primarily makes dance music. Yeah. Uh, how do you feel about that? And well, he he does a variety of music, but he, as, a, as a fan of music, his favorite music to listen to is EDM. But he likes music in a different way, my son, than I do. He's listening for production and sounds. I guess he's more like his dad. He likes to build the music. So in my room, when I'm, I'm writing my songs, my mic is on, I've got my Pro Tools set up, and through my headset, I just, I just you know, I'm, I'm hearing this like... <laughs> you know, on the other side of the wall, and and, and I love the I love the dance music, but because he's creating this music, he'll play the yeah. same four bars for an hour straight, <laughs> trying to get the right bass sound yeah. and the right yeah. drum sound and the right. And you're like, do you know who paid for this house? Oh, like by man. me by writing these songs. <laughs> it's worse than just listening to kids listen to music. It's the same kick Beat. drum over for an hour. Yeah. We were speaking a little bit earlier of some of your early music, some of which was in a way ahead of its time. You were doing these kind of like very strong female empowerment anthems, a lot of talk about gender equality. It feels like we're still talking about that in popular culture, that it's still an issue. How how to you has the industry changed for better or worse in terms mm-hmm. of women in the industry? Well, I think it... <sighs> I think as long as there are men and there are women, the issue will always be there. We're just different. So we're always going to have differences to argue about, debate about. And we need these differences. You know, we, we can't just all be one thing. So it makes great subject matter for music <laughs> and <laughs> things to talk panel. about. Yeah. Sure. And, and, and we all have our point of view. But I like to address these things with a sense of humor. Like man, I feel like a woman. You know, I mean, I just where I'm poking at that subject. Yeah. Sure. But with a sense of humor. And I think that's very important. Well, you've succeeded. I, I've seen men lip syncing to man. I feel like a woman. Mm-hmm. So, um, <laughs> it's helping. <laughs> yeah, it's helping. Keep up the good work. Well, speaking of help, um, yes. we told our audience that you were going to be here to help them with some of their behavior problems, their etiquette dilemmas, and they responded. They were excited you're here. Are you ready to answer these questions? I think so. I'm going to do my best here. Good luck. All right. (laughs) So this first question comes from Ali via Instagram. And Ali wrote, Shania, what do you do when you're at a dinner party and you've been served a horrible meal? And then he also adds, can't wait to see you on the road next year. That's very polite of you, Ali. Well, I want to say thank you for that, first of all. Um, Okay, what do I do at a dinner party? Well, it's happened. It happens to all of us, right? Yeah. Um, especially because I'm vegetarian. So if I'm if I'm oh. served a, you know a big fat piece of steak, um, <laughs> what am I going to do? That must be tough as a country <laughs> artist being like, sorry, I can't have your giant T-bone steak. I know. Well, I think I think the best thing to always do is be polite and say at least what they do like. So I would just say, well, these are great mashed potatoes, or yeah. you know, and I just wouldn't comment on the things that I'm that I decide not to eat on the plate. And I would. When I gave the plate back, I'd say, you know, that was really great. I made the mistake of eating a big lunch. Um, uh, sorry, I go. couldn't finish. There we go. That, that's, I like that. That's, that's okay to make a white lie in the service of politeness. Yeah. I think it's important, yeah, to make people feel good about the fact that they, they gave you something. You know, they, they made that for you. So lie but be gracious. Here's something from Amy Congdon from Canada. There we go. It's a big place, but she's somewhere in the country of Canada. Okay. Amy says, I was recently at a concert. At one point, a lady in my row stood up to dance. The couple behind her got very angry and created a scene because the dancer was blocking their view. Kind of ruined the concert for everyone. 
I thought the couple was out of line. Am I wrong? Well, okay, so I'll just get to give you like a real quick backstory on my answer. Okay. Yeah. So my husband and I were at a classical concert, and I can't be at any musical concert without like jamming to the beat. It doesn't matter mm-hmm. what the genre is. I'm gonna. I'm not just gonna sit there like a robot. Forget it. You know, I've got to. <laughs> like, I wasn't like rocking out or anything, but I was. You know, you were my, feeling it. I was feeling it. Was and it Beethoven yeah. or something that you could really headbang to? It was Tchaikovsky in this case. That'll so do. So I would yeah. be like, you know, there's a lot of like punches, and um, <laughs> I respond when you know, sixty violins all come in at the same time. It's it's yeah, it's right. amazing. So. But I wasn't doing anything that should have bothered anybody else. Mm-hmm. But of course, the lady beside me yeah. was like, mm. would you stop doing that? It's very distracting. <laughs> and I thought, like, I'm in my own space. This is the way I enjoy concerts. Yeah. So if the person that stood up was the only one in the whole place standing up, then maybe I would say the etiquette of that environment was to sit. Of course. But if, but if everybody leapt up at the beginning of the concert and it was kind of a standing concert. That's it. And if you chose to sit, you're just going to have somebody blocking you and you got you to gotta yes. suck it up. It's your problem. I, just, I do love the idea of Shania Twain rocking out at a classical show, though. That's Absolutely. Cool. Making devil's horns to Tchaikovsky. <laughs> That's forever live in my memory. Um, our last question comes from Lara. I think that's how it's pronounced, and you'll know why I'm unsure with this question. How do you correct someone who repeatedly mispronounces or misspells your name? I bet Shania and I have this problem in common, says Lara or Lara. We do have this problem in common. Do people mm. still mispronounce your name seriously? Yeah. What? In Europe, I'm Shania. <laughs> <laughs> and I've just accepted it. So that's my advice. Mm-hmm. That is literally yeah. the last way that I would ever pronounce your name. Like, Shania. You no, Italians, French, Germans, Shania. Sounds nice. Shania. Yeah, that works. I mean, you, I, I'm okay with it. It doesn't really annoy me. So from somebody who's not annoyed by that, my advice is it's a small problem sure. to have in life considering all the other more difficult problems that we have, like not remembering your name at all. That is totally legit. Lara, there you go. Shania Twan, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I'm going out tonight. I'm feeling all right. Going let it all hang out. Shania Twain, her new album called Now is out now. She launches a nationwide tour early next year. And if you have... Is she here? Guys, she just left. Look, you can see pictures of her on our website. Wait, is that her bottle of water? Uh, yeah. Thanks. So, folks, if you have etiquette questions, perhaps about appropriate behavior in the workplace, yes, send them to us via dinnerpartydownload.org. Just click contact. And now, the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. And Brendan, today we're going to talk about cheese tea. Yes, which is a thing. It is a thing. It really is tea topped with cheese. Mm. And in downtown LA, it is now available at a cheese tea shop called Little Fluffy Head. Okay, I like the sound of Little Fluffy Head. Yes. I do not like the sound of cheese tea. (laughs) Well, the shop's owner, Jenny Zhang, told me neither did the people of Canton Province in China. Wise people. Which is where a gentleman opened the first cheese tea shop a few years back. It wasn't very popular in the first place. You know, people was like, why would you put cheese in the tea? And I have to admit that I thought the same thing. <laughs> right. And then it just got viral over the last two years. It's like all over China. I remember when I'm back to Canton province and I have to wait at least an hour to get the cheese tea. Like a line around the block kind of thing? Yes. First of all, what is what kind of cheese is it? 
mostly they use cream cheese and then you can work your way to like mild cheddar cheese and then maybe stronger cheese with the tea. For our store, we actually have cream cheese and cheddar cream cheese. When you say that it's more like cream cheese, now I can sort of get it because I can imagine that's a little more, I guess, creamy. And, you know, we put cream in tea. Why not? Yes, it's called cheese tea. So what people initially imagine is the actual block of cheese on top of the tea. Um, but then actually it's the melted cream cheese with the whipping cream, milk, and then a little bit of salt to give it a sweet and savory taste. So the taste of the cheese is actually really subtle. That actually sounds delicious. So it's cream cheese and whipped cream and some salt? And milk and some salt. That I feel like I could just eat in a bowl. Um, what kind of tea is it served atop? There are different kinds of tea base. The traditional black tea, the green tea, and then we have other like floral tea. So which one would you recommend as a beginner? What is going to get me into this idea? What's the best tea-cheese combo? I guess for a beginner, I would start with the uh, mildest combination, which is like floral teas. They're sweet. You don't taste that much of the bitterness. And then you pair it with the cream cheese on top. All right. You want to make me some of this and I'll try it? Okay. Yeah, sure. All right. We're now in the kitchen. And what I see here is a plastic cup full of ice and uh, a delicious, what, what uh, flavor tea is this? This is the rose oolong. It's our most popular tea base. Okay, rose oolong. And you've got a, a pitcher, a metal pitcher full of, it kind of looks like mascarpone cheese maybe, but I, I know that that's not what's in it. How do you whip that up? Uh, using a hand mixer. Now, your business partner told me this is often done with a powdered cheese mix. You're using fresh stuff. Right. Originally, when it started, the, um, it was with the cheese powder. Back in China. In China, yes. But it was never taste as fresh as if you are using like the actual cheese. I'm thinking of like the powdered cheese packet that you get with macaroni and cheese. Is it like that? <laughs> uh, I don't know, but I've tried the one with the actual cheese and it tastes way better, I think. Yeah. All right. Why don't you ladle this on, I guess? And you're just going to spoon this cheese mixture on top of the liquid tea. Yes. I'm going to pour it onto the tea. In a way, it's kind of like a parfait dessert. It's a layered fruit thing with a creamy layer on top right. of it. It looks like you have ice cream on top of the tea. Yes. And I mean, honestly, I guess it's not that much different than ice cream. It's got some, some milk and some sugary stuff, whipped cream. Yes. Nothing to be afraid of. Oh, and then finally, before I drink this, you have this lid. It looks kind of like uh, your standard takeaway coffee cup lid, but I understand that this is actually a much different kind of lid. What's going on here? So this lid is actually specially designed just for cheese tea. Um, you have a pang jiao hole that you, you can put the straw in and then on the other end you have this like specially designed opening where you would sip the tea. Um, I see. So, so on one side it has a punch out hole. I could put a straw in there right. or I can sip it out of the hole in the front. Yes, it's more recommended to sip it from this hole first because so that you can try the cheese and then the tea like in the separate layers and then mix it in your mouth. I see. So, the, so first I'll get a little bit of cheese and then it'll be followed by the tea. Yes. And then when you drink it halfway, you put a straw in and then you mix it and then it tastes a little bit like the milk tea. At that point, it'll be more mixed together and I right. drink it with a straw. Yes, that's correct. All right. Here, let's take the first sip. Oh, yeah, it's really good. The floral, I actually was a little suspicious when you said floral tea. 
with a cheese. I don't know why exactly, but it just seemed like it might be too fragrant. I think of cheese as like nice and sharp and the floral would make it kind of maybe sickly or something. But they work together really, really well. It's delicious. Right. Actually, I flew back to China just to work with my tea supplier. And then together we customized the tea flavors. So the floral taste is subtle. That's delicious. Actually, I wanted to ask you one more thing. The name of this shop, Little Fluffy Head. Mm-hmm. What What is the story behind that? So when I was having this idea of opening a tea shop, my mom was always being very supportive. And she on my 18th birthday, she gave me this soft toy that has my face on it. So I call it Little Fluffy Head. So this, it was like a doll of you? Yes. So that toy reminded me of my mom. So that's why I named my cafe Little Fluffy Head. Okay. The only thing that this store is officially missing is like a rack of Little Fluffy Head dolls that you've got to start selling. Uh, you mean putting my face on it? <laughs> yeah, I guess on second thought, that's a little narcissistic. Right. Maybe. It would be like weird, like when I walk on the street and see everyone carrying a soft toy has like my face on it. <laughs> Jenny Zhang, owner of the cheese tea shop Little Fluffy Head in downtown LA. And Brendan, she also served our staff a concoction that was like drinking strawberry cheesecake. All right, which is which is a good thing. It is a very good thing. All right. It's a delicious thing. Well, let's take a break while we check Rico's blood sugar levels. Uh, and when we return, the creators of Little Miss Sunshine tell us about the most bizarre tennis match ever when the dinner party download continues. Have a seat. I'm fine. Relax. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, public radio's arts and leisure section. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, Emily Haynes of the band Metric goes solo. But first, let's hear from a filmmaking duo. That'd be Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Ferris. They started out as rock video auteurs, co-directing classic clips like Extremes More Than Words. And they leapt to the big screen with Little Miss Sunshine, which was nominated for a Best Picture Oscar. Their new film is Battle of the Sexes, a dramedy about the real-life 1973 tennis match between women's champion and feminist Billie Jean King, played by Emma Stone, and the chauvinist former men's champion Bobby Riggs, played by Steve Carell. In this clip, the two cheerfully spar at a press conference. Where is it going to end? Pretty soon us fellas aren't going to be able to go to a ball game. We're not going to be able to go fishing. We're not going to be able to stop and have a drink after work and that's what this whole women's lip thing is about and it's gotta stop and Bobby Riggs is the man to stop it. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Custer's last stand. This is the lobber versus the lever. (laughs) (laughs) Keep talking, Bobby. The more nonsense you spell, the worse it's gonna be when you lose. Well, I'm the ladies number one. I'm the champ. Why would I lose? Because dinosaurs can't play tennis. When I spoke to Jonathan and Valerie, I asked what attracted them to the story and why now. It was interesting. There were three different versions of this story all rushing to production when we started. And uh, when we cast Steve and Emma, that sort of you won. killed the other two. We, <laughs> yeah, won. we won. We won that battle. Yeah. But, you know, it was 2015 um, when we started on this, and it was, you know, the, we were heading into the election, and we were pretty sure Hillary was going to be running against a man. Mm-hmm. So I think it was just in the air. And, you know, the reason we wanted to tell this story and tell it the way we told it 
is that there was so much about their personal lives that we didn't know and that shocked us. All that she was going through, I and mean, both of them were going through while all that was going on, just kind of blew our minds. Sure. I will say Billie Jean King is obviously a hero as an athlete and as a person and as an activist. So what surprised me most watching this was actually how much effort you and uh, your screenwriter, Simon Beaufoy, put into making Bobby Riggs a sympathetic human being, especially since he spent so much effort making himself into this total caricature of a boorish male. What was hardest about that for you? Well, you know, we didn't want to discount the, the chauvinism that was there on some level, but there was much more to Bobby Riggs than his public bluster. It was interesting to us that at 55, he felt the world had passed him by. He was a, a champion when he was very young and won the Triple Crown at Wimbledon yeah. in 1939, and then the war broke out. So he kind of missed out on his moment in the spotlight. Mm-hmm. So as a middle-aged man, you know, working in his you know, wife's father's business, he felt uh, obsolete. And, yeah. I think, you know, also getting to know Billie Jean, she had a lot of love for Bobby. I think even at the time, she grew up watching him play, and she respected him. She could see through um, his kind of clown act, and she understood why he was doing it. You know, he wasn't the real opposition. It's true. The the real opposition, the villain in your movie anyway here, is Jack Kramer, who's the head of the Tennis Association, who to me represents institutional sexism. Right. Exactly. Pretty much. Yeah, I mean, and even there we cast Bill Pullman in that role who, you know, has played presidents and is, <laughs> is, a, is a more... He defeated the aliens. He saved us yeah. from aliens. Yeah, yeah, he saved us from aliens. But now presidents... Uh, aren't the same uh, heroic figures. So, But, but uh, yes, he clearly is the voice of the times. But still a human being. You know, I think Billie Jean, she tells a story, it was Wimbledon, where Jack Kramer, toward the end of his life, was at Wimbledon in a wheelchair, and she hadn't really been in close contact with him over the years, but she went down and gave him a big hug and kiss. You know, I think... She, what's so incredible about her is I think she just always looks for the good in people yeah. and and in her opponents as well. And we took our cues from her, really. Yeah, that's something uh, that I found really endearing about her character, especially watching this film at this time of very angry identity politics, is her sense of humor. Right. And she can laugh with Riggs and even like him despite all this chauvinist gender bashing. At, to right. what extent were you thinking about that? attitude as a comment on modern-day identity politics? Well, I mean, we try not to get into the fray <laughs> to a certain degree. I mean... I think I, you're kind of in it regardless. <laughs> oh, no, we, exactly. Yeah, I mean, but I, I do think that she's been so effective in her activism, and I think part of what's made it work is the way she approaches politics and the opposition. She's not calling people names or um, reducing people to a one note. Actually, let's talk about her a little bit more. This is the first time you've had a real person as a protagonist in one of your films. And mm. obviously, you met her during production. What quality of her was most important for you to capture? Was it the humor? What? Well, you know, Billie Jean at 73 is very different from the person she was at 29. She is first to point out that it was an incredibly confusing time for her. Mm-hmm. But, but she was married to a, a man, for those who don't she know. Was ma- <laughs> yeah, she was, she was married to a man and having her first relationship with a woman. And that was something we wanted to portray, was just how hard it was to sort through her sexuality when she, you know, coming from a very conservative, homophobic 
family, parents. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, and, you know, she, she talks about herself being homophobic. So I think really? she, she was, yeah, it was very hard for her to acknowledge that part of herself and with all that was going on, I think it was it must have been really scary because she had so much at stake. She had a lot to lose. I, th- I think of this in relation to your other two films, Little Miss Sunshine about a little girl's beauty pageant, Ruby Sparks, which is about a guy's misguided fantasy of the perfect woman. And it occurs to me they're all about taking on and to a certain extent rejecting the standard concept of womanhood, what it means to be a woman. Mm. And I can't... I like that. You're welcome. I can't help but think that you're a couple, one of whom is male, and that's an interesting theme to keep returning to. (laughs) Why do you? Well, it's certainly not a conscious thing, but, but... but there is obviously an interplay between the two of us that is always in effect. And I don't approach it as a man, but it's certainly part of my makeup. And and I think it's just so much what we're facing all of the time. You know, I mean, maybe... As a team, you mean? Well, as a team and then as a society, as a culture, as a culture yeah. you know, just uh, gender equality and equality in general. But I think in terms of gender, we experience it or I experience it very differently in our industry because I have a male partner. Um, Mm, So sometimes maybe that gives me a different perspective than I think most female directors. I still have experienced the, you know, sexism over the years, but... Do you think that's why maybe your films are taking on these issues? But, you know, when I think of them, I think of them as lighthearted. I don't think of them as angry films. They're they're definitely not angry. (laughs) That's not what we gravitate to. There's nothing wrong with that, but... So much of, I think, what we do comes from a love of the characters and a compassion for the characters. You obviously have a great time reconstructing 1970s America Mm -hmm. with all its insane fashion and hairstyle glory. (laughs) You were teens in the 70s, I believe. Mm -hmm. What aspect of that time were you most excited to recreate? Ted Tinling's tennis dresses were kind of outrageous, and (laughs) that was really fun, getting to recreate those. I mean, even just the extras, it was so much more fun than the usual fair with extras. So Yeah, we had 250 extras, and we had to handpick each one because you, you don't want obvious plastic surgery and oh, or a, a, an aerobicized body. And so they were as much the sets as anything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, you know, we, we also didn't want to get too cute in our depiction of the 70s. We, we tried to approach it as if this were a contemporary movie. As if we were making it in 1973. And, hmm. you know, we sort of realized, like, people in 1973... A lot of their clothes were from 1968 or not, you know. (laughs) So we really did mix up the period and different aged people had, you know, like whatever the style was when they were 25 is what they wear for the rest of their lives. And, you know, so (laughs) they're just kind of playing with that. And um, Mary Zofries, our costume designer, is incredible and down to the undergarments. Yeah, the undergarments actually... What? All period on oh, undergarments. Yeah. So you gotta have come on the latex no. cross your heart no, bra. All period, and it, it, it was. I, I even took a picture when we first went to the costume room because there were just racks and racks of these sort of brownish, <laughs> very used, unappealing used undergarments. Period <laughs> undergarments. Oh, the glamour Maybe. of Hollywood. Yeah. Yes. Try not to think <laughs> about that watching the movie. <laughs> Valerie Ferris and Jonathan Dayton, their movie Battle of the Sexes is in theaters everywhere. 
And now, let's end this dinner party today with some tunes. What a great idea. Thank and here you. to help with that is Emily Haynes. She's the front woman of the Canadian band Metric, which combines rock with gritty electronic music. She also has her own solo project called Emily Haynes and the Soft Skeleton. Their second album, Choir of the Mind, is out now. Here's Emily with a party playlist and a soup recipe. Hi, my name is Emily Haynes, and I'm here to enjoy some time with you with my dinner party playlist. Toronto has all these winding back alleys. I have a little um, like instructions written up for people to get to my house because there's no way they'd find it otherwise. Uh, you come through this like hidden passageway and you open the gate and it's this garden that's full of trees. And I always, when I'm having a dinner party, make sure that the music is already on and there's immediately something to eat and drink the minute you walk in. So the first song on my dinner party playlist is a song by Kruang Bin from their album The Universe Smiles Upon You called People Everywhere Still Alive. If you don't know it, you are going to love it. That's something really good, I think, to put on as people are arriving. It has to be that the music has some something interesting about it that gets your attention. I don't believe in music as a wallpaper. And at the same time, it doesn't have to be distracting, but something that really fills the room with, with a sense of possibility. In terms of signature dishes, I'm kind of a soup guru. Uh, there is a legendary chicken tortilla soup that I made at one Christmas dinner get-together that is still, people kind of hound me for it, and I can't really explain what happened. It was a bit of a magical thing. Steam clams, leeks, white wine, crusty bread, everybody wins. Once we've enjoyed just hanging out and getting out that next bottle of wine and maybe I'm bringing out some chocolate because we should do that always, I think that the Avalanche's Saturday Night Inside Out is the next sort of feeling that I would create. We tend to actually then have a time after dinner of actually listening really closely to what's on. Listening to the lyrics, talking about who made it. In the case of the Avalanches, they hadn't made a record in, I mean, long time. And this record, it came out last summer, but it, um, to me this song is just so compelling in the mood that it creates and then the whole spoken bit at the end is the kind of thing that can start a conversation. So that would be the kind of music I'd play after dinner. I adored the way she modified my mornings when I'd wake up in the calm shoals of her bed. Somersaults of smoke and a universe of sleep. Before she slipped back into her heritage and disappeared. My dad, I really do think, was the original uh, mixtape guru. He was famous in his lifetime for his, what they were called mystery tapes. And he would tape difficult music that he purposely would challenge you with. And there were two rules. One was you're not allowed to ask who it is because that means you're not in the moment of the music. And the other thing is he would always say, don't worry, it will be over soon. <laughs> so I try to push people with the music that I play. We need to push ourselves with music not to just sit in things that we already know. You know, what are we afraid of? Th that we're going to feel funny for a few minutes because, like, Frank Zappa is saying something weird? Just 
push yourself, let the thing be weird, let it be awkward, and hear something new. So this is how I got my moniker, DJ Emotional. So the third song that I put on my playlist here is this Dead Meadows song called Burn the Here and Now. And this signifies the next chapter of the evening. Burn the Here and Now is a quintessential DJ emotional selection because it's really, really heartbreaking. The lyrics of like, I'm holding on to what I know is true. I'm holding on to the truth in you. Memory is trying to burn the here and now. The idea that we can't get into the present. This is a major theme on my album. This is something that I think we all grapple with of just trying to actually be present. Nobody wants to hear their own music or each other's music when we're all trying to relax. Having said that, some of the most precious moments in my life and in my work are in the magical window of time where you've been working really hard on something, you finished it, you finished the song or you finished the piece, and it just belongs to you and the people that you love, and it just gets to exist. So... From my album, I included a song called Minefield of Memory. So unstable you were. A song that's really about going back to where you're from and instead of feeling trapped by the past, actually realizing how incredible it is to have access to those memories. The reference in this particular song is this one corner that every time I'm standing there I'm just like oh this is since I'm 15 years old I keep coming back to this corner kind of like being able to see your past through glass just leave a light on songs have a very small window where they get to just be and then they have to do something, you know? So this would be a nice end to the evening, a song that just can be. How is the sound strong enough to carry you Over the undertow Keeping the volume low I stay with my memory Every time I've ever had a dinner party, there has to be what we call an exit jam. It's a thing that happens where it's like, we all know that we're not going to have a massive sleepover, but it is getting really late. How do we all feel good about leaving? Because we never want it to end. An exit jam needs to be something that's uplifting. You can crank it up. Everybody knows it. You can kind of look at each other, sing it to each other badly. You want to send them out on a high note. It's not unlike a concert, I suppose. Family Affair would be a great exit jam. Emily Haynes with an assist here from Mary J. Blige. Nice. Emily's new album is called Choir of the Mind. 
And you can find her recipe for that famous chicken tortilla soup at dinnerpartydownload.org. Go get it. And folks, that was our party's exit jam for the week. Catch us next week for an interview with Denis Villeneuve, director of Blade Runner 2049. Meanwhile, let's roll credits. Our senior producer is Jackson Musker. Our associate producers are James Kim and Krista Ripple. Christina Lopez is our associate digital producer. Drew Josted engineered. And Emerald Douglas is our intern. Till next time. Shania! <laughs> that was like 20 minutes ago, Krista. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Bon appétit. <laughs> <laughs> 